Hey, good morning, everybody. I am Dan. I'm, I'm glad you're here today, and I'm really excited to get into Advent season with you. I hope today helps prepare our hearts for Christmas and to look at Jesus and his coming from the perspective of the Old Testament. That's what we really want to do today. And then also to kind of sort out what people's different reactions to the coming of Christ can be and where we should find our reaction. That's the work that we want to do today. Uh, think about different reactions for a second. What are a few issues or topics that tend to get really extreme, polarized, different responses from people? Like strong, love it or hate it reactions. The stuff you don't hear people go, meh, about. But just hot takes only. What are a few of those topics? On the lighthearted side of things, you might think of pineapple on pizza. It's either disgusting to some people or delicious to the others. Honestly, I've never heard anybody say, it's fine. People hate it or they love it. There's no moderate position on that. Around Christmas season, a lot of people feel the same way about fruitcake. I don't know if that's maybe more of an old school thing, but some of us get that as like an office gift or it's on the counter, the serving table at our Christmas parties. And some people feel like, yes, this is, this is what completes my, my nostalgic Christmas experience, and I treasure this. I adore fruitcake. And other people are just, this is terrible. I just throw it away without any second thought. On a more serious note, next year we've got an election season coming up. Boy, do those, every four years, what are those poll serious, intense, uh, divided reactions from people? Some people feel like, I know exactly who the right candidate is, and everybody who else is just evil and unfit and incompetent. Get them out of here. Similarly, I, I don't know about you, but as I've, as I've tracked the Israel-Palestine uh, conversation, conflict, it, it seems like there are mainly two approaches to that. At least that's how the world wants to present it right now. Whether you talk to people in person or you listen to the debates or you're just reading the news, it, it just feels like one or the other. There's not a lot of room for middle ground on that. You're firmly pro-Israel, just intense, extreme, angrily pro-Palestine. There's not a lot in the middle. And even if you feel like, I, I got a balanced opinion on that, people kind of don't want to let you be in the middle, push you to the extremes. Some issues do have a lot of room for shade, for nuance, for detail and degrees. And, and sometimes it can be really helpful to, to think about certain topics on a, a spectrum. It's a helpful way to sort things out sometimes, but other times it just overcomplicates what should be really simple and straightforward. Or in pursuit of specificity or balance, we can sometimes generate a, a, opinions that aren't real or positions that just aren't valid and true. And we're left realizing that you know, some discussions just have to be black and white, one or the other. A, B, no C. No middle ground, two responses, that's it. Some conversations are that way. And the coming of Jesus is one of those topics. There are only two ways to react to, to who he is, to what he did, to what he will do. Love him or hate him. There's no, uh, there's no neutral ground on that. Even if we have friends or family or we feel like our own position on Jesus, our own attitude towards him is maybe neutral, tempered, I think we'll see today, biblically, practically, just logically, there's no middle option. I hope today helps us to, to sort that out and, and sit with that. I hope today our study 
also helps us to prepare really appropriately for the coming of Jesus in Advent season, to respond rightly to the reality that he is our king, both in our overarching beliefs and positions, but also in the, in the, the daily, everyday you know, decisions that we make and the actions that we take. And there are two ways to respond to the coming of Jesus. And so today we're going to look at two passages that tell us what those responses, reactions are, and how we ought to think about his arrival and all that that means. One of those passages is in the Old Testament, and it was uh, telling the world to look forward to the coming of this king. And then another text we're going to look at today in the New Testament helps us to look back on history, guides us in evaluating, am I still responding to Jesus the right way? It's Psalm 2 and Matthew 2. In Matthew 2, it's a very familiar passage for us. That's Herod and the wise men. We know that story. But I hope today with a, with a closer look, we'll see that there are extremely different reactions to the arrival of that little King Jesus. One is competitive and threatened, resistant, even violent. And the other is trusting, it's eager, it's joyful, worshipful, even bowing before King Jesus with gifts to acknowledge his unimaginable value. And in the backdrop of Matthew 2 is this passage, Psalm 2. It's our other passage. I think it's incredibly important that we let that Old Testament text teach us the same point, the same idea from an, another perspective. And then we'll see the coming of Jesus and the, the different responses to him prophesied all the way back in the Old Testament, way before he arrived. Psalm 2 is one of my favorite texts. It's a really big deal passage. It's alluded to, it's cited extensively in the New Testament. You'll see it pop up in a ton of New Testament passages. It's one of, it's, uh, one of the first Psalms that I ever preached. It grabbed my attention in seminary, and it's one of the places uh, in the Old Testament that helped me to first realize the Old Testament has just been shouting and screaming the arrival of Jesus in, in more ways than we could ever know. It's so cool. I hope you enjoy it today. It, it's, Psalm 2 teaches us that there is this chosen king who is begotten, born of God, the son of God, and foreign rulers just hate him. And, but we are warned to change their, our response, to, to serve him, to bow to him, to avoid his wrath, and to take refuge in him. That's what Psalm 2 is about. So let's, let's get into that. Feel free to open your Bibles, your apps. You're welcome to look on the screen as well as we read through Psalm 2. Let's go. Psalm 2, verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heaven laughs and the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. That king says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. <clears throat> now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Two things we want to notice about this text. 
There's a lot to see, but let's just focus on two things in this passage. One, this is about a king. And two, there are two ways to respond to him. This is about a king, and there are two ways to react. The two options for how somebody can respond to this king are pretty clear at the beginning and the end. You saw it, right? It's either rage or respect. It's either hatred or humility. It's trying to break away or it's bowing down. That's, that's really evident. You saw it. And s- some of the references to being a king are pretty evident too, but then some of them maybe are a little bit hidden. Hard to see. Maybe they don't pop as much because of limitations in English. There's some linguistic stuff we want to kind of dig through here. And so let's, let's look back through Psalm 2 and, and l- evaluate all these king references for, for why this is about a, a ruler here. First one, the first king indication shows up in verse 2 where we see this phrase, his anointed. That's an interesting phrase. That word anointed in Hebrew is Mashiach. That's where we get the word Messiah. That means this person is a chosen, selected king. Oil has been poured over them to say, this will be our ruler. That's what Messiah means. It's a symbol of royal selection. This word gets translated into Greek as Christ. That means exactly the same thing. And that word gets translated into English as king. And so when we say Messiah, when we say Christ, we mean God's selected king. That's what Mashiach means here, anointed one. It's a beautiful idea. The second indication that this is about a king is in verse 3, where it says, let us burst their bonds apart, cast away those cords. That means they're trying to get somebody's authority off of their back. They're trying to push away from somebody's leadership and rule. There is a king over them, and they don't like it. It's another clue that this is king. Another one is in verse 4, where it says he sits in the heavens. Why is he seated? Is he taking a break? Is he, is he resting, or is he lazy? No, not at all. What do kings do? They sit in a throne. It's about a throne. He's ruling and judging from his throne as kings ought to. It's another indication that this is about a king. In verse 6, you see very clearly, explicitly, this is my king who I have set, this is God speaking, set on Zion, Jerusalem, in Israel, which is the center, the capital of God's rule through his Messiah over the whole earth. It's about that king. The next one is in verse 7, where the king here is referencing the Davidic covenant. That's a passage in 2 Samuel 7, uh, where God says to David and his lineage, you will be like sons to me. It echoes God's promise to David about Solomon and then all the kings, uh, they would come after him, that you're going to be like sons to the Lord. And at this time, you know, calling a trusted subject a son uh, was common practice when you were about to give an inheritance, like to a son. And, to, and that prepares for the next king reference, which is in verses 8 and 9, where God tells the son, your inheritance, this thing I'm going to give you as my son, is the whole world. Just ask, and I will give all the nations to you. Your rule over king is absolutely everything. Finally, the last reference to king here is in verse, verses 11 through 12, where you see the instructions to the rulers of the earth to kiss the son. This is what you do to honor a king. It's, but you have to be in this position to, to kiss either his hand or his foot. You have to bow down in humility and submission and reverence before this king. This is what the Bible says Samuel did to King Saul when he was selected as king. This is what people in the Old Testament were said to have done to, to gods, bowing, kissing. It's a sign of kingly acknowledgement. 
But there's more to the word son here in this phrase than we can see in English. It's kind of a, a twist or I think of it like as the, it's like the secret sauce of this passage. This is very cool. That underscores the global universal rule of this king that we're talking about in Psalm 2. It's a word that was spoken outside of Israel. This, most of this psalm is written in Hebrew except this word. This word is in Aramaic. Different language. This language is spoken by the Babylonians, by the Assyrians, by the Persians, these nations outside of Israel. Look at this. This is interesting. In Hebrew, the word for son is normally ben. But in Aramaic, the word for son is bar. The author here used ben, son, in verse 7, you are my son. But in verse 12, he's changed the direction of this psalm. He's pointing it at the nations surrounding Israel in their language, in a way that they would understand. You can't miss this. What does that mean? That's saying, nations, listen up. You need to bow. You need to kiss. You need to honor this son of God who is not only the king of Israel, but the king of you, of all nations of the entire world. That's amazing. Secondly, this is a little nerdy historical, hang with me. The time frame when the Aramaic language was widespread, popular, and the description of Israel in this passage and the surrounding nations and how they're interacting, that seems to date, to place this psalm in a time, it was used in a time when there was no king on the throne. How do you have a psalm about a king when there's no king? If that's right, then this psalm is inviting the reader to imagine a day in which the future king of Israel would arrive and establish his authoritative global rule. What I'm saying is that this psalm is like the empty shoes of Jesus. When my daughter was about a year old, uh, I would have her on, on Mondays. That'd be my day off so that Suzanne could go into the office, my wife. And I remember when Olivia was little, uh, she would... She would see a pair of my wife's shoes by the door and point to them and say, Mommy. She's, she's not dumb. and She knows that that's not her entire mother, right? But she's correctly identifying, like, that is, my mom belongs in those shoes. Those things belong to her. There's nobody else's, right? I know who is going to fill those later this afternoon when she comes home from work. I think Psalm 2 is working the same way. We know that this belongs to the coming Messiah the king of Israel and the whole earth. And we should see this today and understand this belongs to Jesus, the son of God, God's anointed chosen king over the whole earth. This is about who he is. This is about what he would do, what his arrival would mean for the world and the two ways that we can react. And this psalm is asking, how are you going to react? How do you respond to the coming of this king? On one hand, am I altogether rejecting, raging against, resisting the rule of this king? If we are, it should be pretty easy and straightforward to answer that question. But on the other hand, what if, we, what if we do believe and say that, yeah, Jesus is king, but we resist his authority situationally, or we kind of compartmentalize his rule? What do I mean by that? The Spirit is convicting me of corruption or covetousness 
at work, not embodying a, a Christian ethic at the office, and we're using greed and jealousy to control our spending habits. We're not using the, the company credit card the right way. We're berating people and bribing and blackmailing, harassing, underpaying, you know? We are actually practically trying to break free of those bonds of Jesus that say, conduct yourself with holiness and righteousness and justice. Be kind and loving. We're saying, I don't want that. I want to be in charge of what I do at work. I'm going to set my own path to success in my career. I'm the boss of my business, not you rejecting the rule of Jesus. When the king tells me to be loving to my neighbors, we've got to, I've got to do that. If I'm a terrible neighbor, I'm loud, I'm mean, I'm messy, and I park in front of their driveway, and I'm never available to help, then I am acting like Jesus is not seated over the place he has called me to live and how I operate and act within it. In that place, that compartment of my life, I'm rejecting his rule. A few months ago, my truck, I drive an older Dodge Dakota, and my truck was squeaking. It happens every once in a while. And it it was a squeak I I had a hard time detecting, finding. I got under the the car, and I could could tell there's something in in like an axle or a a joint. And I I emptied probably two cans of WD-40 and a whole thing of garage door lubricant and stuff, just trying to find the, where's this squeak? It's annoying. It's embarrassing. I drive through the church parking lot, you know, got to get rid of this. I had a hard time finding it because the squeak, the friction, that resistance was in a part that was concealed, all bolted up, hidden, real difficult to get to. And I think our resistance to Jesus is kind of like that sometimes. Tough to see hidden under the surface. Like when the Lord tells me, you need to forgive in your heart, in your mind. Like, am I doing that or am I telling him, no, I want to hold this grudge a little bit longer. I want to stew on this. I don't want to let go of that chance at payback. That pushes away his kingship. When his word instructs me and commands me to think pure thoughts and be disciplined in that area of my life, but I dwell deeply on lust and hatred and just addictive, toxic input, I am rebelling against Jesus as king over my mind, right? When we have dysfunctional relational patterns, behaviors in our blind spot that make us feel normal and comfortable, it's working for me, but it's actually hurting other people. I have a sense that they're there. I don't really want to pay attention to them. That's a lot of work, inconvenient. I refuse to look at that. I don't want to surrender that to Jesus. I don't want to ask him to give me new dialogues inside or resurrect my habits with my family members. When we do stuff like that, I'm compartmentalizing his kingship. Don't touch that part of my, my heart. Psalm 2 is calling us, friends, to pay attention to every one of those places, those moments, those categories of our life where we, we know what Jesus wants us to do. All the thoughts and the feelings and the relationships and inclinations that he could be ruling over. And it's inviting us to invite the Spirit to help us not resist and reject, but to bow to him and honor him and kiss him in those situations and say, you, Jesus, are the king, truly, not me. You be in charge of this area and this area and this part of my heart. 
I submit all of that to you. And so when we forgive, we're kissing the sun. When we care for our neighbor, we are serving the Lord. When we pursue purity, placing our minds under his rule. When we embody the the character, the ethic of Christ in our workplace and treat people the right way and handle money with integrity and righteousness, we are bowing before the Messiah saying, you are king of all that. When we let him search our hearts and illuminate those things that maybe we want to keep invisible, when we say, you restore my relational habits, Lord, we are trusting him as the powerful, resurrected, victorious king that he is. There are two ways to respond to him. Rejection or reverence. And I hope this helps us to find and uncover some of those points of resistance so that we can be more fully submitted to his rule. This whole idea is not just in Psalm 2. It shows up in Matthew 2 as well, the other passage we need to look at today. It's the same dynamic playing out in this familiar Christmas scene. We'll also see that there's still a message There's still an invitation in this for us today in Matthew 2. So let's turn there. Let's look at Matthew 2. Uh, Follow along in your Bibles or or look up on the screen with me as we read this. Matthew 2, verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose. We've come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born, and they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared, and he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go, search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, a star they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. They fell down and worshipped him. And then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Skip down to verse 16 with me. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise man, he became furious and he sent and he killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under. One of our goals today is to see more of Jesus in the history, in the prophecy, in the poetry of the Old Testament, to look at his arrival, his coming, his advent from all of those angles. And one of the reasons I love Matthew 2 so much is because it's showing us at least seven very clear ways that the birth of Christ and the ways we can respond to it, all of that is foreshadowed and foretold hundreds of years before Jesus arrived. Look at it, look at it this way. <clears throat> Check this out. These are all the things that are being fulfilled in Matthew 2. In Matthew 2, you have an echo of Exodus. Think back to Exodus. Moses 
who is the, the one who would lead God's people out of slavery, he's born under an evil, insecure Pharaoh who did what? Who ordered the death of baby boys, just like Herod. That exact history is intentionally repeated, echoed here in the arrival of Jesus, who is the greater Moses, the real leader, the real deliverer, the one who would guide his people out of slavery to sin, freedom from death, yeah? That's fulfilled right here in Matthew 2. Another way the Old Testament anticipates this very passage, this moment in history is Numbers 24, really interesting text. You could go back and do further study on this and really read around all these, these passages. But Numbers 24 said a, a rising star and a scepter would come out of Israel. That's happening here. Micah 5, you read this quoted by the, the scribes and Pharisees and, and wise men, that, that the, the shepherd ruler of Israel would be born in the city Bethlehem. In 1 Kings 10, you have the queen of Sheba, who brings uh, spices and gold to Solomon, who is Jesus' great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather, a type of Christ pointing forward to this Messiah. Psalm 72 similarly says that kings, uh, foreign rulers, would bring tribute gifts to this royal son of God. That's happening here. In Isaiah 60, it prophesies that a light would rise and that nations would bring gold and frankincense that's crazy. That's exactly what's happening in Matthew 2. All of that is fulfilled in this scene that we just read where young Jesus is visited and honored and acknowledged as king. I know that might feel like a lot of Bible, but it's just so beautiful, so detailed and intricate. Uh, it, we have to look at this. It, it gets me so excited. I hope, it's, I hope it's helpful to you too because this allows us to see that the Old Testament has been screaming, blinking, flashing that the Jesus is coming. This king it will arrive one day. It says it in so many ways. And I want to encourage us to let this deepen our, and strengthen our sense of confidence and trust in God's word. Because all of this was announced and proclaimed. These prophecies, these pictures were given to us 500 to 1,500 years before it happened. That's amazing. That is sincerely heart-melting to me that our God planned this, wrote this that long ago for us. And we get to live on the other side of it in the salvation that this king brought to us. And so let's never take that for granted. We don't want to overlook this. I hope this helps us to bow down to that King Jesus. It is so special. It is so beautiful. All these passages culminate right here in Matthew 2. It's awesome. I love it. But what about the passage we just looked at? What about Psalm 2? Did you see that showing up in Matthew 2? I think so. Because what were the two reactions that you saw in Matthew 2? It's either anger or adoration, right? It's wickedness or it's worship. It's resentment contrasted with reverence. Jealousy against joy, right? It's the same thing. Where does that show up in Matthew 2, though? Let's first look at the wise men's uh, reaction. You've got these royal astrologist scholar advisors, probably from Babylon, actually, modern-day Iraq. And these guys would have been diligently searching for and, and anticipating the arrival of this king. And they see a star at some point you know, after Jesus' birth. They see this star rise that leads them to Jerusalem, the capital of Israel. I think this is a good place to start. Let's check out Jerusalem, see if this, this king is there. 
And they're, they're, they're trying to find and worship this newborn Jewish royalty. And then that star next leads them to Bethlehem, the place where Jesus grew up in his early years. A little two-year-old Jesus was. And they are overjoyed. They fall on their faces and they bow in reverence and respect. It's beautiful. Opening their treasure chest with gifts fit for a king. These prescient Precious, extravagant gifts of frankincense and gold and myrrh, spices and gold, just as the Old Testament prophesied. I think a lot of us, if we were to hear that a a, a king was born, we might wait and see. I want to check this king out before I write the check. Let's see how he he grows up. Is he going to rule well? Is he going to make good decisions? Is he going to be strong enough to overthrow whoever's sitting in his seat? Is this guy going to pan out? I want to wait. But these wise men approached this little King Jesus in faith before any of that happens. What a beautifully worshipful response, right? That's one reaction to the coming of this king. On the other hand, you have Herod. This is Herod the Great, but by no stretch is he a good guy. He was known for paranoia, jealousy, high taxes, forced labor. Jewish historian Josephus wrote a lot in the first century. He told us that Herod had his whole council of politician judges killed and replaced. He was so horrible later in his life in fear of being overthrown. Herod even had his own wife and children murdered. That's this guy's reputation. He's brutal, he's selfish, he's unstable and insecure. This is a king interested in killing those that he is supposed to be loving and protecting and caring for in order to preserve and protect his own power and position. What a sharp contrast with the real king in this passage who would grow up to selflessly set aside his own position and power, giving up his life to bring life to other people, yeah? So that's Herod. And verse 3 says that his reaction was troubled. He was deeply disturbed. That's what that word means. He's shook. He's agitated, bothered. He's threatened by this idea that another king was born and might take his seat. And all Jerusalem, you saw that all Jerusalem was terrified with him. Why? They're worried about how Herod's going to react. This dude's violent. He's going to burn the city down. What's what's our guy going to do? So Herod not really aware, clued in to the time or the place that this other king was supposed to arrive. He brings his experts in. He says, where's this, where's this kid supposed to be showing up? They say, Michael 5.2 says Bethlehem. That's exactly where Jesus is going to be born. This is crazy. They know exactly the place where, where Jesus is, and they're doing nothing about it. They're kind of checked out. Like, yeah, this is what the prophecy says, and they're not going to search for him like the wise men, Right? They're not paying anywhere near the attention that these foreign, pagan, outside of the covenant Gentiles have been paying. So you got these passive Bible experts. You've got Herod not happy at all. And he's so angry. You see in verse 16 that he orders the murder of all the little baby boys of Bethlehem. Just unimaginable wickedness. There is no greater atrocity. You want to hold on to your position your career, your privilege, and your prominence so badly, you will kill kids? That's evil. That's so evil. It's, it's satanic, actually. 
I'm not exaggerating. Think about Revelation 12. Do you know that passage? Where the dragon, the great beast, the, it's the devil. He is standing, waiting at the birth of Jesus. Mother Israel is delivering this child and this dragon is sitting there waiting to devour him. That is the spiritual backdrop of what Herod is doing right here. It's satanic. Satan's agenda is driving Herod to kill children and that is one reaction to the coming of this king. You either worship in faith and in joy, you lay gifts of royal tribute before the throne, bow to kiss the sun in reverent homage or it's self-concerned resistance and resentment. It's feeling so threatened you're willing to hunt him down in hatred. Going to unbelievably wicked lengths to kill this king. And as extreme as that sounds, the point of this passage is to say, which one will you be? How will you react? I realize that sounds, that might sound crazy. Maybe I don't feel like I fit one category or the other. I don't want to be sent to one of those extreme ends of the spectrum. I might put my reaction somewhere in the middle. I'm like a six out of ten, you know, about Jesus. Because how can we say, honestly, think about this. How can we say that people hate the coming of Jesus when they, they seem neutral, they, they feel tolerant, you know, ambivalent? Like, that's yeah, fine if it works for you. It's one of the, th- the thoughts about Jesus that we hear a lot today. I don't care what you do in church. Jesus sounds like a good enough guy, but I'm, you know, honestly, I'm just doing my own thing right now. I have family members like that. Even those positions hate Jesus. Even those thoughts resist, refuse his kingship. If that still sounds crazy, not sitting right with you, let me tell you why. We don't kind of jump off a cliff, do we? It's all or nothing, one or the other. You're on it or you're off it. We're not kind of married. You're all in or you're not, right? Nobody is cool with a contractor kind of being done with the project. You got your tub, you got your countertop. Where's my sink, dude? I paid you. Well, I feel done. You know, that's not good enough, is it? It's one or the other. The Chargers kind of played football on Thursday. What happened? Check the score. You got to go all in. Some things are just one or the other. It's A or B. There's no middle. And how we respond to the arrival of Christ works the same way, doesn't it? We are all in or all out, even if we feel kind of there, somewhere in between. So if we say, Jesus is fine for you, but I'm not really into that. That's not for me. What are you doing? We're not acknowledging the universality of his rule, are we? We're saying no to that. That's not for me. I guess, Jesus, you can be in charge of that stuff, of those people, but not me. I'm sorry, that's not moderate or open-minded. That's saying, I refuse to tolerate you as authoritative over my life at all. If we feel like we're on the fence about Jesus in a gray area and we say, I'm okay with Jesus like a couple days out of the year, but we reject him the other 363 
That is not middle ground, is it? The same is true if we're only bowing to Jesus on the weekend, but disregard him the other five or six days of the week. That is trying to demote Jesus to a little part-time king. That's disrespecting our ruler. The Bible taught us today that Jesus is the king of all nations over all people and everything all the time, every day. And if we say, no, you get one day, I get the rest. That is totally rejecting him. He's saying, I get to be king most of the time. And I'll pretend that you are a little bit. The same goes for if we act like Jesus can influence a few selected areas of our life, but don't you dare touch this. You can have a couple of my decisions, my values. You can maybe flavor my politics a little bit, but not this stuff over here. That is us reducing Jesus to a lawn ornament, an edited, tailored, shrunk, plastic baby version of Jesus that serves a purpose for us, but never acknowledges the full picture of who he is and what he would do. It's a version of him that stays outside, but you're not in charge of anything on the inside. I'll send my kids to private school, I'll I'll tithe, and that's where it stops. I don't care what Jesus has to say about my character, what I do on Friday night, how I treat people who are suffering and in need, don't touch that. Friends, that is decoration without dominion. If that's you or me, that's how we think about Jesus. We are effectively trying to push him out of the throne. We are fully opposed to God. We are casting his authority aside. There are two ways to respond to our king. Please understand, I don't say this to be all mean. I'm not trying to alienate anybody here. I'm just trying to say what scripture says, which is warning all of us, me too, that we need to welcome the kingship of Jesus, the Son of God. I recently realized I needed to do this in a specific area. Not proud of this, but I'll share it with you. Just hope it's helpful. Mondays are my day off, and one of the things that I've been enjoying over the past few months has been this stand-up comedy show. That's it's both a podcast and it's released on YouTube and. It's been a lot of fun. Laughter, laughter helps me to feel refreshed and de-stressed. A lot of you probably feel like that too. And this particular show did that for me. I think I started to, to need it, rely on it. <clears throat> but the more I watched it, I realized how raunchy it was. How the, it, it jokes about sex so inappropriately and it really was pushing the lines on what's funny and then what's just like evil and sinful and horrible. And I, I kind of had that sense a few times, I probably brushed it aside for 20 episodes or so. Just kept relying on this show to make me laugh and relax on Mondays. And recently felt a nudge, and my wife helped me come to this conclusion that I should be done with it. I don't need it anymore. So just click the unsubscribe button, unplug. And so I did, and I haven't watched it for a couple weeks. And that's one specific area of my life, and one, one thing that was useful and precious to me, valuable, that I needed to lay down before Jesus, say, you, you take this back over. I realize that this is not worship you. This is not honor you. You be in charge of my rest, Lord. 
Mondays are not mine. This is the Lord's day. This is a time for me to, to trust you to refresh me and help me recover for the week ahead in a way that's holy and honoring to you as my king. And I share this not to be like pious or self-righteous or anything like that. I just want to share an idea of how we might bow down to Jesus in every little part of our life like this. Every single compartment where maybe we're standing up against him, arms crossed, brow furrowed like this. I want to be king of this. I'm in charge. Please, friends, let's think about stuff like that today. Let's consider deeply through these passages, through the, the Christmas season, like whatever position you're in, whatever your posture is towards Christ right now, let's ask what, what parts of my heart, my mind, my attitudes, my actions, do I need to, to bend my knee and my, to truly, sincerely, and like humbly come before Jesus and admit you, you have come as king, and I acknowledge that. And I want to celebrate your rule. I want to, I want to worship you with not just part of my life, but all of my being. Take it all, Lord. If we're struggling with that, we're feeling like, I don't want to let go of this. I would prefer to still be in charge of this stuff. I don't trust you as my king, Jesus. I want to invite you to just reconsider who he is, what kind of king he is, how he rules, what he has done. What do you think about this? That this king, Jesus, was born into humanity. He lived without any corruption or sin. He taught us righteousness and humility. He taught us holiness and grace. He cared for the vulnerable. He fed the hungry. He healed the sick. He welcomed the children. He rebuked abusive leadership. He delivered people from the destruction of demons. He never did anything wrong, yet he suffered innocently in our place to die on the cross sacrificially for all the wrong things that we've done. And he did that to wash us clean of our sin. This king was raised to new life in power to show us, to prove that he is actually the son of God. He ascended to heaven where he's seated on the throne at the right hand of God the Father ruling over his church right now. He is so generous and gracious that he poured out his Holy Spirit, his presence on all who would believe in him that we might be comforted and counseled, that we might be guided and helped, enabled to live in the identity that he has clothed us with and empowered to walk in his call to kingdom work. And one day this king will come again in the wrath of God, Psalm 2, to rightfully reclaim his earth, to judge it, to rule it, to free it from injustice and evil, to put an end to wickedness. And he will renew it, and he will invite us who believe in him to rule with him in his new creation. That is the good news of Jesus. That is who this king is. And that's what he has done. This is the, the, the ruler that Psalm 2 and Matthew 2 are inviting us to bow before, to kiss, to honor, to serve. So friends, please understand, this is not a malicious or manipulative king. 
This is not a, a sinful or selfish ruler by any means. One who wants to wring you out, ruin your life. One who deserves our skepticism or suspicion. This is a king who is so good, who is loving. He is gracious. He's right. He is perfect. He's kind. He's powerful. He's just. And he is trustworthy. I hope that this helps us choose how we respond to him. How we respond and react to this truth that he is that kind of king. He has come and he will come again. So I hope this melts our hearts in a way that invites and allows, empowers us to, you know, if we're in a place where we're holding on tightly to the thrones of our luxury or our comfort, our political identity or how people perceive us or our sexuality or our space, our treasure or our time, I hope we see who Jesus is and come to a place where we can trust him and place it at his feet. If we are resisting his authority in any part of our attitudes or our conduct, our ethics or our relationships, I hope this good news of Jesus shows us how much better it would be if he would just be in charge of all of it. If you're feeling fearful that bowing down to Jesus is going to leave me feeling trapped, tied down by his moral standard, I, I hope and pray that we would see he is the only one who truly sets us free. Free from sin and death, from guilt and from shame, and from desires and pursuits that will only lead us to destruction. If there's any hatred or bitterness, any anger or resentment towards Jesus, would you please consider his character, his compassion and his gentleness, his generosity towards us. Please know that he loves you. He welcomes you. He cares for you. He's reaching out to you right now in reconciliation and peace. If right now Jesus is dead to you, I pray that you would see that he died for you, that you might have life in him. Friends, Jesus has come, and he will come again, and there are two ways to respond. We can resist, and we can receive him. I pray that we would receive him over all of our life and in the parts that we maybe haven't quite released to him and his rule, that we would bow before him and that we would confess him as king. Would you pray with me? Let's bow our heads, close our eyes, and I want to invite you to just, just think, just reflect. Ask the Lord to help you with this. What part of my life have I not given over to his rule? Am I still standing there just completely opposed to Jesus? Or is there any compartment of my heart, my mind, my attitudes, my postures, the way I treat people that I need to release and lay before the feet of Jesus?
Would you invite the Holy Spirit right now to convict you, to illuminate, to give you vision, to see those places where we need to say, Jesus, you are king over that. Would you rule over this? Or if you have been in a position, a stance that has been altogether outright resistant to Jesus, no, I don't want you. But you're feeling maybe Jesus is good. Maybe he's okay. Maybe I could reconsider that. I want to invite you to pray this prayer with me, just in your hearts. Lord Jesus, I am sorry for my rebellion against you, for the ways I've pushed you away and said you are not my king. I want to change that. I want to bow before you. And I want to acknowledge you as the ruler of my whole life over everything. Jesus, I see that you died on the cross for my sin. That you are so good and gracious that you earned forgiveness for me with your own blood, your own life. That you were raised back to life in power to give me new life too. Thank you for that. Lord Jesus, I trust that. I believe that. I want to follow you and live like you are the crucified and risen king of my whole life. I receive your Holy Spirit to help me do that. I want to worship you with all that I am. Thank you, Jesus. It's in your name I pray. Amen.